Hello and welcome back to Untitled Tolgies Podcast, a Gundam Wing rewatch podcast. In this episode, we will be covering episodes 11, The Whereabouts of Happiness, and episode 12, Bewildered Warriors. These two episodes cover the month or so directly after the battle between the Gundam pilots and Oz that ended with Hero's self-detonation. Duo follows Katra to a hidden base somewhere in the desert in the Middle East, where they have a very sensible and reasonable discussion about how they must be allies and have the same purpose. Before anything more can happen, however, Oz sniffs out the Magwanax and attempts to bomb the surrounding area, forcing Duo and Katra to escape. On the Oz side, Zex orders his troops to fix Wing Gundam, while Trey's sends Lady Un to Moscow, where she is supposed to meet an older aristocrat named Marquise Weyridge, who has been demanding Trey's explain his intentions. But it just so happens that Relina has infiltrated the very same dance, and under the wing of Weyridge, pretends to be his granddaughter. Relina attempts to assassinate Lady Un, fails, and is ultimately rescued by Noin, who arrives gallantly on a motorcycle with orders from Trey's to take custody of Relina. In episode 12, we are reunited with Hiro, who awakens from his self-destruction-induced coma a month later in the care of Troa, Catherine, and the circus. Troa and Hiro have a heart-to-heart, which inspires Troa to put on a spectacular act for the next circus show, which just so happens to be in front of Oz troops. Separately, in a, quote, autonomous mountain region of China, end quote, Sally Poe, having defected from the alliance, is helping counterinsurgency troops fight against the oppressive Colonel Bunt, his ally, Colonel Nanaki, and Oz. I don't really get the politics of this, so I'm sure we're going to talk about it. Wufei, having been defeated in a very stupid sword fight with Trace, claims that he is unworthy of fighting with Nataku, but is convinced by Sally's sacrificial streak to get back in his Gundam and fight. Um, there's a lot to talk about with these two episodes, but I think maybe we can start with Arab World, which is just all we have in the notes for this is Arab World. So I do think that there is a fun connection between episode 11 with Arab World and episode 12, which is, quote, the autonomous mountain region of China, <laughs> which I think is Chengdu or like Sichuan province somewhere. Wow, you've already thought about this more than the Gundam <laughs> Wing writers did. They note canonically that it's Sally Poe's home. And so they say, oh, you're home and now you're fighting in this war. So I think it's interesting because we know there's this home aspect to Arab world and to China world, both in these two episodes. I, I think they're trying to maybe introduce culture and a sense of what these people are fighting for. And part of what they do is try to tie it back to these ideas of like ancestral home and origin. I guess query whether or not that worked for you guys. Well, it's weird because this replaces any... It, it seems to culturally replace what we would have seen of the colonies that Katra and Wufei are from. So we don't... Like, instead of seeing L5, we see fake China. And instead of seeing L4, we see fake fake Arabia. So it seems to be standing in for, like, the culture that we would have gotten in their background stories, which you get in other media. Like, if you think about it too hard, it's like, it's not like Wufei is literally from China. He's from a colony. Right. Um, it doesn't really deal with that difference. It sort of just elides any difference between the, the colonies themselves and the nation ethnic areas that they would have represented. I mean, it's clear that the writers just were like, we need an exotic culture. And so the Middle East is this exotic culture of belly dancers and fezes. And it's just this like 
uncomfortably stereotypical vision of what the culture in these countries and these places would be. This sort of made me think, maybe this is totally crazy, but with with Katra as like the blonde, blue-eyed savior of the Arab world, uh, it, it sort of made me think it was almost like an intentional Lawrence of Arabia reference. Yes. So my notes have very problematic portrayal of Middle East, Aladdin slash Lawrence of Arabia. And I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? Those are the cultural touchstones that these writers would have come into contact with at that time. There isn't as much ability for them to get like really specific in their ideas of what culture in, say, like Iran is like, right? Versus Saudi Arabia. Well, I don't know. This was only 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, they had they had books 20 years ago. They could have I mean, sure, research. but like their their 90s cartoon like animators. Are we really expecting sort of I don't know deeply intellectual representations of cultures? Oh no, I have no expectations of anyone. We're still not seeing that in Japanese anime today. Yeah, I have no expectations of anyone involved in this. I do want to push back on this because the autonomous mountain region of China does not look Chinese at all. And the people that Sally Poe fights with don't look Chinese. Wu Fei is the most Chinese person in episode 12, despite it being technically set in China. Like Colonel Nanaki is not a Chinese name, right? And... I, there's a scene in in twelve in episode twelve where Sally Poe is escaping, and you see this line of like conical pine trees. And I was yeah. thinking to myself, that's not what Shitan looks like. That's not what Chengdu looks like. That's not what any mountain region in that area in China looks like. And so, I do think it's interesting because they go with these really stereotypical portrayals of the Middle East in episode eleven, and then just totally like throw it out the window in episode twelve. Um, one of the things I was thinking with the, with the name Nanaki, which is clearly Japanese, and the name Bunt, which seems vaguely Germanic to me, there seems to be something going on where uh, you have the Japanese as colonizers, but they're like good colonizers. They're like the ones who really wanted to help the local people, and they really had ideas about creating an, an autonomous, an actual country. But then you have Bunt as the Germanic overseer who betrays them and, and pulls it back into... Uh, Oz-controlled region just just for power. So it seems to be like an almost very misguided attempt at a commentary on Japanese colonization versus European colonization, where like in the Japanese colonial mindset, you have a sense of solidarity with the the other the little brother Asian nation Asian nations of China and Korea um, versus the European powers, which Japan during militarization was trying very much to be like, oh, we're better than them. We're we're not the bad colonizers. This seems to have like intentionally or unintentionally recreated that just by the choice of names, just by having like a sympathetic Japanese name versus a traitorous uh, Europeanish name. That seems to be seems to be very strange. That is interesting because Nanaki is like, no, the citizens will never allow Oz to rule them. But I thought, I guess, I thought it was like more ironic. I disagree with Caitlin on this. I think Nanaki is supposed to be local and I I think I'm thinking of the same conversation you are which is that there's a moment where the Alliance talk about the Gundams and Bunt says let's get help from Oz and Nanaki essentially pushes back and is like no let's not like that that's exactly what I'm saying he's he is he is sympathetic to the local population in a way but 
But the reason why I point this out is, and I looked, and there, there was a separate linguistic reason why I looked up the scene, but Bunt says very specifically at the end of this, for, and it's translated in the English sub as for the fatherland, but what yeah, he actually yes. says is sokoku, which is like ancestral land, right, in Japanese. It doesn't have like a mother or a father connotation to it. So that conversation read to me like, at the very least, somebody in this group is supposed to be actually from the autonomous mountain region of China, and they believe I don't, I don't themselves. I don't know about that. I think that for the fatherland line is is very much what people said in under Japanese colonialism about colonizing. Really? But, but my yes, thing is... Yes, because there's not... For the fatherland, even if it's sokoku, is an but, extremely, like, nationalistic phrasing. It's, it's I not agree like, with you, Caitlin, in that reading, but I think in the show, Nanaki and them are supposed to be, in fact from this region. Okay, I'm going to disagree with you there, though, because one, everything we know about the alliance is that they come into the countries. They don't set up, like, local armies. They, um... They bring their own tr- what troops. What is it? They, like, militarize the zone. But we, but that could have been years ago. But that's still a colonial power. Like, there are plenty of Japanese they, people in Manchuria to... who consider themselves Manchurian, in a way. But not only are they, as the alliance like inserting and forcing these countries to join them they also kill the autonomous leader like zone's leader like he's assassinated at the beginning of this whole thing let me put it this way i am not saying that i think they're chinese all i'm saying is i agree caitlin with your gloss on what is happening in this series but I do also think that Nanaki thinks of himself as from this region and setting up an autonomous region. And I don't think that is totally inconsistent with the idea that they are outside colonizers because there are plenty of colonizers who move into a region and, and then consider it their area. This is actually a really interesting part of colonization where there's, I mean, if you look at like literature from in Japanese from Manchukuo, there's a lot of sort of, oh, we the Japanese are now Manchurian sort of commentary. Like, I don't think that's totally inconsistent. I don't think they necessarily think of themselves as having come into this region and brought up stuff. Like, I think Nanaki thinks that this is his country. But I don't think that necessarily means that they they are from that country. Right. right. Or it, that they wouldn't be colonizing forces in this country. And and if you go back to what I said, what I said was they might think of this country as their own. They might think that they are from this country, regardless of whether they actually are. I think all I think all of those readings are possible. And I do think that, like, part of this issue is that we don't know how... I mean, I mean, like, this is not necessarily supposed to be a coherent political story that is being told. I, I think that is possible. I still read this, I guess, to me, I read this when I was watching it as Nanaki actually is from this autonomous region. And he wants to set up his own nation. And that Sally Poe is helping the rebel troops in this area who also believe that this is their region to set up their own region. And Bunt invites an outside force, Oz. Like, that's how I see it. So, like, I think what happened was the Alliance troops are in the autonomous region, but there's a local government and government official um, who's, like, running it. He gets assassinated because Bunt wants to take that political power. And the best way to rule a country is to declare it independent. Then you can be, like, the president or whatever. And Oz made him a better offer. Yeah. The show does say specifically that this is an Alliance occupational army and that Colonel Bunt had disagreed with this leader's like peacekeeping because he wanted to achieve independence through building up the military in that region. So I read that as he is an outside force because he is part of the occupational army. Like you don't really have an occupational army. Made up of locals. Yeah, made up of locals. Yeah. 
It also seems like there, there's one line, I, now I can't remember who said it, about like the war is just repeating over and over again. This does seem like a repetition. It's Sally. Yeah. Uh, this does seem like a repetition of the other battles we've seen in like the Sank Kingdom, in like Trey's trick to knock out all the pacifists. It does seem to be like in every single one of these instances, you have pacifist leaders who mean well, but they're knocked out by a uh, ambitious military leader. This whole thing kind of reminds me of like Vietnam films, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. And like, so I thought episode 12, it felt very much like a Vietnam film. And I can't say what specific one. And I don't think that that was necessarily intentional. But there's all these really interesting tensions between a guerrilla force and invaders and colonizations and whose side is what. And it's not even like the full 30 minutes because we have this other issue with Troa and Hiro like also butting in into this episode. So it's like what, like 15 minutes total to tell a story that's actually quite complicated. Mm-hmm. And and also it doesn't help that the Middle East nations are so sort of stereotypical and that imperial China doesn't really look or feel like China. So there there isn't any sort of foundation that you can place the politics on. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I think yeah. it's it just makes it really hard to like be sort of specific in what the show is maybe quote unquote trying to do commenting on imperialism. Kathy, when you said about Vietnam War films, to me that episode was very much like a Western, which I always feel like, you know, Vietnam War films are sort of the... The, the natural descendants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that scene with the, the restaurant tour where Sally just shows up is like, hey, what the fuck? The scene at the restaurant looks a lot like quite a bit like Wuxia films. Like I was thinking of like King Hu films. Like you always have sort of the brutes, like the nameless, almost faceless brutes who like terrorize a place. And then you have the heroes sweep in to save the day. Yeah, which is also the the same Western structure. Yeah, and then Wufei is like the cowboy rolling in who they have to convince to help the town, so... So I'm going to slightly shift this conversation um, just to get to the very end of the Sally and Wufei deal, which is Sally is, uh, I guess, attempts to give herself up to convince Wufei to get back into his Gundam and fight. And she says specifically something like, healing your heart is more important than my life. Right now. Mm -hmm. So stupid. Than my life is. I'm sure of that. Yes. And so I think it's really fascinating. And I know we wanted to have a little bit of a conversation about this. Sally basically walks Wufei through the course of episode 12 through his like depression his funk whatever it is that you want to call it that he's going through and Sally is sort of like Wufei's government mandated heterosexual love interest in this Mm -hmm. series it was definitely like the writers got notes back from the studio (laughs) like hey remember straight couples do you remember straight love (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like they were like okay look the Wufei Trace fight with the swords was too gay and now you must give him a woman to express interest in Except exactly my takeaway from this was she was basically like a therapist slash mom and like I could not in good conscience think about this as a romantic couple yeah absolutely not. absolutely not now I'm looking back on all the fics that had you know they were one two and then three four but then they had like Wufei and Sally Poe in the background I'm like what Like, there's something especially, like, darkly kinky about that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm like, what the fuck was wrong with those people? I love that Sally is actual for reals a doctor, but this is how she's going to help Wufei through his depression. 
by letting a mobile suit kill her so that he will avenge her. You'd think she did like a psych rotation or something and could better help him, but no. I mean, I guess she's working with what she has, and that's, please protect me. Right. I mean, like, her parting words to him are essentially giving him, like, a new mandate. (laughs) Like, when you're able to fight with Nataku, I hope you'll come fight with me again. And I don't know, I thought it was pretty clever. She's meeting him on his level. She's like, okay, the only thing you know how to do is fight and criticize people for being weak. So here is how I'm going to give, I'm going to give you this emotional labor. It seems like in the show, it's meant to be a pretty high level philosophical debate, but all they say yes. is sort of nonsense phrases. Yeah. Like, yes. like yes. back and forth about how, so Wufei's issue is that he feels like he's weak and therefore he's not worthy of fighting with Nataku. Because he can only defeat opponents weaker than him. Yeah. That makes him a coward, which, but like once you've defeated them, like isn't that a tautology? Anyway, who face 15. Right. And then she's like, if you regain your strength, use it to protect the weak or use it to help the weak. And that sort yeah. of gets yeah. through to him somehow as he's drifting off on that boat. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's mid-episode. I, I just want to focus on the moment where he just like drifts off on a boat. Yes, his, his depression boat. Goodbye. Wu Fei sails away from his problems or feelings. Powered by his sadness. And it has no <laughs> oars or paddles of any sort. So like nope. I can only imagine that it was it was like set adrift by the currents and midway down the river he was like, Oh shit, I gotta get out of this boat somehow. Oh, like, no. I, <laughs> I just have a mental image of Wu Fei like cupping water out of the boat. You know, it's leaking, it's sprung <laughs> sprung a leak. <laughs> He's so depressed he couldn't even camouflage his fucking Gundam. Just throw a fucking camouflage net on that. Why did you even bother? It's just sitting there. I totally agree with this nonsense phraseology. Like, I I don't understand Wu Fei's approach. I think to me, what it boiled down to, and there's a line in there where he's basically asking Sally, like, why do you fight if you're weak and nobody's ordering Mm -hmm. you to? Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that was good. Because that was revelatory. Yeah, that was really good to me because it occurred to me that, okay, well, Wu Fei must have gone through a lot of his life either being told what to do or like how to feel about what he's doing and now we know from the opening of episode 12 it's been a month and none of them have gotten any missions and so a lot of what episode 12 and episode 11 with the duo and Katra conversation is is like the pilots trying to figure out like what do we do now like what is our motivation and why are we fighting and Mm. so the people who end up in episode 12 providing a response to this is one Sally Poe who says you know everyone has their own sense of justice like you need to find out what that is for you and like what it is in your heart that you have strength for and you want to fight for and that in a way echoes what Hudo kind of confusingly I'm not really sure if it gets through to Troa tells Troa which is like <laughs> like follow your emotions and I, I do I think that was like to me I finally understood like why these two stories were being presented with each other in episode 12 like I was like oh like I was like oh I guess this is like the odd numbers discover like how to feel about themselves um and unfortunately it's like terrible advice to give Troy emotion is to die (laughs) well I mean all of their emotions the episode 11 plot too is is also about Duo and Katra finding a motivation outside of their orders in a way in that it's like it shows them the locals it shows right they get bouquets from girls it's just their version of this is really like kind of joyous and fun 
until the alliance shows up and then Wu Face is like depressing. I guess we'll see more next episode, but I don't even want to get into what Troa is going through. What is even going to happen with Troa? I was like, don't fuck it up for your circus buddies. That's not fair. Yeah, he is going to get his entire circus arrested for terrorism and it's going to suck for them. Um, I wanted to say, though, when you're talking about training for Wu Fei and his stuff, I thought that ties really neatly into that conversation where Katra and Duo say, like, the stuff that they were told at the same time, like, don't worry about the colonies, it's revenge. Yes, yeah. And Wu Fei being unable to move ahead without orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they, so the specific phrase is destroy them first, that's your responsibility. And I thought it was a just a really effective moment in writing in general, because it's sort of like we were saying, it tells you a lot about the type of training and brainwashing that these anime kids have gone through their entire lives, that it's just like rote memory and all of them learned it and all of them have lived with this weight of it, your responsibility is to destroy our enemies for the colonies. And that's like a lot of weight for kids to carry. Especially when you then hear from Troa that the colonies were not all 100% like, please send some terrorists down to Earth. Yes, I absolutely loved that moment. I missed it the first time I watched it. But this bit where Troa basically, in a way, teases the backstory that we'll learn about him from Endless Walls, which is a little bit different than the others. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when he essentially is like, actually, you know, it was a small group of us from my colony that wanted to send the Gundam down. But I followed my heart his heart being kill Oz. I, I don't know, like, what? Like, I followed my emotions. I don't know what okay. the emotion there was. You have, you have the heart of Oz, the heart of Oz, which Lady Un does not understand, and the heart of kill Oz, yeah. which Troll has mastered. Which Hero does understand. I did love that because it was very different from the story that we were hearing from Duo and Katra in episode 11, which felt very much like the colonies are behind you. And when and Katra even says this bit, right? He's like, I'll swear on these flowers that like when we meet again, I'll fight and like we'll all be united in our mm-hmm. hearts or whatever. Yeah, like the colonies thoughts will be united, I think is what Duo says. And the sort of concept of unity that we see throughout these episodes and like even within the five Gundam, pilots like the sort of disorganization of the colonies is reflected in the disorganization of an inability of these Gundam pilots to like really work together until they're thrown into like in field in battle situations where they must team up because the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a thing and now we see it's been 11 episodes and we're only just really seeing them have like in-depth interactions with each other with a few few exceptions yeah going back so I, I agree with all that but there was some something that like in, in terms of Troa like dropping this line that oh by the way we didn't all agree uh, versus what Katra and Duo are doing Katra also mentions that he has been disinherited at this point yes. he disinherited himself so it seems like his impression is that like everybody in the colonies wants this maybe except his family because they're pacifists right so we have two majorly influential pacifist families happening but the pacifists can't get anything done they keep getting assassinated yeah Right, so then it's up to their children to kind of take up the fight. You start to see Rolina's moment where she's like a peacecraft and she knows that she's from this line of pacifists and yet she pulls a gun out. From that giant bow on her from that, Yeah. Which is great. And then she doesn't even shoot Lady Un. She goes for the rose, which 
I thought was a pretty cool move. I'm starting to like Relina. She's like teaching these old people how to live and she's like inspiring them to like stick to their guns, essentially. And they're also powerful. Like finally the tides are turning from the aristocracy, it felt like. Lady Yun is a character that wouldn't hesitate to mow down anybody she could get away with mowing down in pursuit of her goal, even after being warned by Trey's. But it's like, well, I can't just fucking merc this marquise, right? Yeah, so let's talk about this. So, like, we did the Gundams. Let's move on to the other half of the story, which is what Oz is doing, which is not much, right? Really, yeah. it's just sending Lady Un to Moscow. And then this dance. So somehow she ends up at the same dance. My reading of it is that she is not invited. She's not an invited guest. She walks in and then Marquis Wayward sees her, instantly recognizes her as from the lineage of the Peace Cast and then lies and says, this is my granddaughter. And then it turns out that Marquis Wayridge is the aristocrat that Trey's is sending Lady Un to talk to because he, he says to a line to Lady Un before he sends her off you know there's a bunch of aristocrats in Moscow who I guess will understand Oz's purpose but that doesn't seem to be the story that Marquise Weyridge says which is that I've been asking to meet with Trey's because I want to know what the F is going on. I, I love these aristocratic scenes because they seem to be utterly disconnected from any modernity or time or like location or geography like out of nowhere it was very much like an Utena-esque like yeah. party that these people are having with these fancy suits and then of course Noin pulls up prince-like gallant-like so on this cool. motorcycle oh, yeah. saves Rolina in like in that scene if you had like gender swapped Noin to be like a young aristocratic man it would not have made a difference right like she could have done every single line and every single move exactly the same that would have hit their heterosexuality quota but instead, it destroyed the heterosexuality quota. It's Noin. It's amazing. It, it's an amazing scene. So since we've been team Noin as a lesbian this whole yeah. time, this was like the most lesbian Noin episode yet. Ten she, lesbian Noins out of ten lesbian Noins. She gay. She's ours. So this is clearly the moment in your lesbian life where you think you've been in love with your male friend from school for years. Even though you were a lesbian, you didn't know it yet. Then you meet his sister and you realize you're in love with her and you awaken as a lesbian. That cape, that motorcycle, the... The, the way she like... She swoops in out of nowhere. The way she shoots that beret off that man's head. And then not just that, but the logo off the hat. Mic drop. Oh, yeah. A demonstration of her prowess. It's also an important moment because it bookends with the moment earlier in the episode where Zex is talking about how Hero is his destiny, whatever, his destined rival. We are setting up to the big Zex-Hero battle that's coming up. So I know somebody said that they wanted to talk about kind of like the minor pairings, and I know we covered some of them, but we've broken out of the one, two, three, four thing here, and we're setting up for kind of like the, I guess, less popular or less canon authorized pairings are like on the horizon which is the 6-1 the Zex hero stuff the Troa hero road trip is is coming up and I'm trying to think if there's any others I was saying we also get two and four in these episodes but I guess nobody ships them nobody supports it I like them but I just I feel like when you see Katra and Troa on this show the show is like look at this chemistry and Katra and Duo are just like we're friends. We're like two gay buds. They're buddy-buddy. They don't contrast enough, in a way. They, they're sort of like friendly and happy, and they they want things to work out. You need like a little bit more tension to be ship fodder on the show. 
Like, I just think 2-4 is, I wrote in my notes, 2-wooby, just don't like it. Like, it is it is cloying to me the way that you all think of 3-4. Who yes. hates 3-4 here? It's, it's okay, me. Okay, so Kathy. It's me. I'm the one with the issue with 3-4. Like, I have an issue with 2-4. <laughs> the way that you have an issue with 3-4. What's, what's the issue? I don't know. I just... Please unpack your issue. <laughs> if they're two bottoms they're just two bottomy sorry they're two bottoms i agree I two bottoms that is that is i can definitely absolutely see that being the joke yeah but but then i thought i could accept this if in a fic they were written as like two trans mask individuals like meeting each other and sensing a connection and mm. like wow. similarity kindred souls in each other i could see that Mallory, you're gonna sell us all no no <laughs> No, I will never. I will never. I love this Aladdin vest. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Where'd you get it? Okay. How about 2 4 in the universe of that Dojinshi? <laughs> no. Super no. tall and tops Absolutely everyone. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is the issue of the pairing, but that's a traumatic issue for me because people used to say that about some ships. <laughs> Oh, no. I don't like to use it to criticize other ships, even when I agree. It's not even that Duo or Catra couldn't be verse. It's just like together. Yeah. Yes. That energy. And, and if whoever is listening out there really likes 2-4, I'm so sorry. And your your ship is valid. <laughs> You're valid. I want to say that I can envision like a dark Katra AU where Duo is like his yes. right hand man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I am willing to accept anything and all ships are valid if they are your ship. But for me, they are two bottom bottoms. And I will just die on that cross for you. Because I don't have an issue with that discourse. Um, we didn't really have like a very specific fandom artifact. But one thing I thought that would be kind of fun to talk about is I was rummaging around on some older Gundam Wing fan sites trying to find... Well, specifically, I was trying to find some essays about the Sally Poe Wufei moment. I didn't do that. But what I did end up finding are some really ancient GeoCities websites and one thing that I saw a lot on the bottom was web rings so I thought maybe we would talk a little bit about web rings early fandom internet sites and the effect of those one thing I did want to bring up while we were talking about duo is famously there was a web ring that was like the society for the defense of duos oh yeah (laughs) yes yeah I, I, I maybe I should explain what a web ring is or some, does somebody want to explain what a web ring is since I've talked a lot. So back in web like what 1, 1.0 1.50 anyway yeah. in the old 90s of the <laughs> of the anime internet and the whole internet people would build their own personal sites because there were no archive sites or as much social media like there's live journal but like you would still put your fic on a site and here's my favorite pictures of my favorite character and then what if I want to look at other sites about Duo Maxwell and I can join a Duo Maxwell web ring but then you can get more specific because nothing causes fights and fandoms like fanon that spreads too fast like Duo being a dumb baka the hero hates so then (laughs) you'd put you'd put a little banner with some unsourced art of like Duo and glasses or some shit and then you put it at the bottom of your, your homepage or your own web ring page, and then you could click on it and find other websites that also approved of your favorite characterization of Duo Maxwell. Part of the reason that it's called a ring is that you could like go f- from one site to the next. There was like a Yeah, there were little function. widgets. So you could like flip through like a whole circle of websites or just read yeah. it. So there were little widgets that could sometimes go with your banners. Or, like, you would hand code, like, copy and paste some HTML with, like, little carrots on either side oh to go God. back and forth. 
Yeah, people people would make banners. So I didn't spend a lot of time on these websites because my dad walked in on me looking at one and was convinced that they were going to um, infect our laptop with viruses. So he blocked them. Anyway. I mean, he probably wasn't wrong. Well, but the thing is that the web rings were much better than like search Mm. at that time. Like this was pre-Google. This is maybe like Ask Jeeves era. (laughs) So if you really wanted to find like Gundam Wing websites, you'd type, where is a Gundam Wing website? (laughs) <laughs> Who is Duo Mas- Maxwell into Ask Jeeves, maybe? Yeah. Um, Boys kissing Gundam Wing Ask Jeeves. So the web rings would allow you to find other websites. You also had, like, the link pages, and you had, like, cultures around linking. Like, you could put, like, a banner on your website that said link free, which means that, you know, feel free to link me. Oh, yeah. Mm. I had I had little banners you, you could download on my, like, personal site. I don't know why I had a personal site. I also want to say the website that Kathy sent as the reference for this, as a link list. And there's one I definitely remember, which what is, is it? Randy Shrine to Duo and Lita. Yes. Oh. I remember there being like, definitely- <gasps> No, it's dead. RIP it's dead. Geocities. But I definitely remember there being like this duo and Lita from Sailor Moon, like solidarity. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know about it. So, um, I would say that the earliest web ring, and I don't actually even know if it was a real web ring, but I remember them from Sailor Moon fandom. Yeah. And there was a lot of like hentai free web rings. That was one that I remembered yes. really well. Or you could you could put hentai free, like just a banner on your website so everybody would know you didn't have hentai. So there is a, you know, and I guess this is actually ties into the fandom artifact thing. There was a writer named Madame Hydra in Gundam. Oh yeah, Ma- oh shit, oh. Madame Hydra. Yeah, yeah. She's probably most famous for writing a fic called um, Maxwell's Demon, which I, uh, I don't really recommend reading it anymore because it's not particularly good. But um, she ran a website called The Darker Side of Duo Maxwell, and she had, mm-hmm. like, it was like a duo specific fanfic site for for her fics. And that's that's the reason why I was thinking of the Society for Defense of Duo's Intelligence because the, that site is part of it. And I managed to pull up on Wayback Machine the requirements for joining the Society for Incredible. Defense of Duo's Intelligence. Please, please read them to us. So there are a group of people who refuse to portray Duo in fan fiction except in parody as a moron, idiot, baka, you get the idea. They are part of a mailing list and you have to be a member of the mailing list. You have to put a link. All the fics stored on your site must be, quote, nice towards Duo. Do you think she was reading all of them? Excluding parodies. Like, was there a moderation or... I did not think about Madame Hydra as somebody who was ever nice to Duo Maxwell. <laughs> yeah. No, not nice to him. Nice uh, to his intelligence. Nice to his intelligence. Nice to his intelligence. So I don't mm. think she ran it. So the person who is the Seriously web... So pathetic. all web rings have a web ring master who is the person who maintains the website, like the index page, if you go to the web ring. And so that person was somebody named Seraph or Angel Azriel. So it, it isn't Madame Hydra. But that definitely sounds like a, a person from the late nineties on the internet. Yes. It's but it's an amazing it's it's amazing because I guess I don't really remember what they're targeting right now. Like I, I don't remember what it is. Oh, I remember. Do you guys? Yeah. Okay, I remember. Like, okay, it was, like, Duo was treated like yeah, an idiot. Like Hero despised him because he was just a fucking baka moron. I think it was like the precursor 
like that that run where Hero is just like abusive to him. Mm-hmm. That was. Oh yes, I yes, remember that. Tough. I remember that, and I think there was. I can't remember if there was a web ring dedicated to not abusing uh, Duel. There were, like, there were multiple web rings devoted to not having any assault in the backstory of probably all of them except for Wufei. Let's be honest with ourselves about <laughs> fandom racism. Um, but yeah, so all you're making me think of is hentai free and hentai free free right now. The hentai free banners and then the hentai free free banners <laughs> on all of these fucking sites. So Oh, fandom. The thing that I do find kind of funny about web rings and a lot of this earlier stuff is people who have absolutely no qualifications or authority of any kind setting up some sort of dominion over which they are the master. And like web rings are one of them. Like web rings are one of them where all the rules and requirements are very specific. Like I'm looking at this one that's a one times two web ring. And one of the rules is they prefer Hiro in the semi slash dominant role. Um, so that oh was one God. of the rules and requirements. This is what fandom is all about. It's about you don't have any control in your own life, so you enact control on the internet against randos. And I'm convinced that that is like a major fandom motivator for a lot of people. Is that it? it it's a path towards authority when you don't have any authority in actuality. But it also sort of like isn't this always what like all the fandom complaints, especially now as the internet is bigger and bigger and bigger like where do i find people like are there discord servers now that serve as web rings yeah maybe. yeah people don't have personal websites anymore like would you join a smart duo discord server i don't know does it function similarly yeah you probably there probably would be a smart duo discord server like there'd be like a main duo discord server mm-hmm. and it'd be so annoying that like a couple <laughs> of people from that would like offshoot <laughs> and form their own duo discord server and it'd be like anti-baka duo discord server all right and there'd be all sorts of weird qualifications our next episode will give you our discord server for good duo maxwell discourse yeah good discourse only but then that would fracture good into discourse. like politics about whether or not it's okay to abuse duo versus whether and then like the secret cabal of like the five funniest people in the discord oh, no. and then history repeats itself once more Sense, a repeat of senseless wars by senseless yes, men. That's exactly what it is. A fandom is always assassinating the pacifists. A repeat of senseless wars by senseless the people. The people who won't is. fight in fandom always fandom. get assassinated by the militant fandom people. Wow. For once, I agree with Trey's. I think we should have a fandom war that is so big, it wipes out all fandom wars. Kathy, you've been pushing for that for years. I feel like that's, that's been your like role in fandom has been like secretly manipulating behind the scenes. That's why I said for once, I agree with Trey's. I suddenly have found my inner Trey's. On that note... On that note, thank you guys all for listening. Join us next time where we'll do episodes 13 and 14, which I know will have lots of circuses. So if you're out there for circuses, episode 13 is your gal. I hate the Until then. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, for Kat, uh, Mallory, and Caitlin, this is Kathy signing off. Tell us what you thought of these episodes. You can find us on Twitter at TallGeesePod. We also have full transcriptions on our Tumblr, untitledtallgeesepodcast.tumblr.com. And follow us on Instagram at untitledtallgeesepodcast for fandom artifacts, sneak peeks, and more. Until next time!